Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello. The, today is April 24th, and we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about a number of things, but mostly we're going to be talking about um, escapism in fiction and what it means to uh, try to escape when you read and you know, how people kind of relate to their books in that way, if they do, in fact, do it that way. Um, but before we do that, uh, why don't we talk about the basics first, huh? Indeed. Uh, so just in case you can hear some slight drum soloing, it is drum solo night in the print run studio. So mm. that's what that is. Yep. Eric's not just like getting down when I'm talking. Yes, I with, am. With like some sweet snare action. Uh, <laughs> send, send me a snare drum. <laughs> so we have a release this Thursday as well. So it's it's Tuesday. Well, technically it's Monday, but it's Tuesday and our free episode's going. This Thursday, our first pages episode is dropping on Patreon. If you don't know about that, that is the day or that is an episode where we critique real live first pages um, sent to us by listeners and writers like you. Um, so if you want to be considered for that, first of all, sign up on Patreon.com. Um, and send your first page to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. This month's query show is already out. It came out two weeks two weeks ago. Um, so we are going to be recording our query show in the next couple of weeks. So send us your queries as well. Again, our address is printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Excellent. Um, so our first topic is, and you're never going to believe this, it's us um, holding a publisher's feet to the fire about a questionable moral decision. Um, so <laughs> um, but yeah, so we've got um, Henry Holt, and I guess we're getting this from a Publishers Weekly article uh, with the details here, but Henry Holt, the publisher of Bill O'Reilly, who many of you, I mean, all of us probably know who he is, but he is a was a Fox News. Was. <laughs> he was a Fox News uh, cable show host, a very popular one, and has been let go by the station after um, many sexual uh, harassment. Allegations. Allegations. And lots of uh, payouts that have been revealed. Yeah, but. no. so it's a mess, and advertisers were leaving the show, and they got rid of him. But when asked if they would be dropping him as an author of many books, and he's written a bunch, um, Henry Holt has declared that they have no change of plans um, with regard to Bill O'Reilly. They will not be um, doing any of the things that go into dropping an author. You know, there will be no rights reversions. There will be no uh, refusing to sign the next book. There's, um, you know, they've said multiple times in sort of this little interview here that um, they're they're staying the course. Well, and, he's a consistent bestseller. Well, so that's the thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. He is he is a name for this imprint. So Henry Holt is an imprint he's of the Macmillan. Name for this for this in, he for this is imprint. The like, name. He, like Bill O'Reilly sells more books than just about anyone. In this imprint. Yeah. Or Or anywhere. No, I mean yeah, a, anywhere. That's true. Like he's um he sells a lot of books. One of his books sold over a million print units last year. That's not including the people that read ebooks. Well, so I mean, look right right here. I mean um, you know, he's got this series, you know, the Killing series, right? Everyone's kind of seen it. It's on the front tables usually in Barnes & Noble. Um, you know, Killing the Rising Sun about World War II. You've got Killing Kennedy. You've got Killing Jesus, I think. I don't know why we keep killing all these people and what um, it's— Well, they uh, were killed, Eric. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Laura so, Zatz's hot take. Yeah. Um, but these books of his, um, you know, like it says here, this Killing series, it's they've sold over 15.5 million copies in print. Which is pretty okay. Um, <laughs> which is which is wild, right? And so, 
Um, you know, they're sticking with him because obviously, I mean, I, I mean, just thinking about it at first blush here, I don't see any reason why any people who are going to buy who are going to buy Bill O'Reilly's book are going to not buy it now. Like, I feel like the reason Fox dropped him was because advertising dollars were, were going away. And not that's be, where they make the money. Not because any fewer people were going to turn tune into his show, right? And so, and I, by extension, I don't think that his readership is going to get any smaller because of any of this stuff. According and, to Nielsen BookScan, it hasn't yeah. since the news story yeah. dropped. Uh, why, the sales I mean, are the same. No, people, people, the people who like O'Reilly think um, they're they are going to keep buying his books. And so, at the end here, you know, this article tries to do something that is interesting, but I think is errant. Um, you know, here at the end it says, um, you know, the question now facing Holt is whether it will face some sort of backlash for supporting O'Reilly. And then it goes into what I think is kind of a faulty comp. Simon and Schuster endured widespread criticism after assigned alt-right star Milo Yiannopoulos to a $250,000 book deal. Uh, they they wound up canceling the title after a video Im- interview emerged of Yiannopoulos appearing to condone pedophilia. So now here's the thing: um, they might get a little backlash for keeping O'Reilly, but they're not going to care about that. And Simon and Schuster didn't care about the backlash either. Um, and that's it's a kind of a false thing. It's a kind of a false narrative with regard to whether or not how these people are making their decisions. The reason Simon Schuster dropped Milo Yiannopoulos had nothing really to do with um, what he said or what they think he believed or if they thought he was like a morally good author or not. What they saw was his potential readership shrinking. They said they had a discussion and they said less people are going to buy his book than we thought. And that's not true of O'Reilly. It's simply not. Like, you know, they, they're not going to see – like, they could care less if people are mad, are mad at – on the internet at Henry Holt. Like, who cares? And especially in a climate where publishers need – you can't just let Bill O'Reilly go. You know, as a, you need him, you know, because he's the guy selling copies. And that so – funds everything else, yeah. Exactly. Like, he's – like, the only reason you're allowed to have your, like, fun little boutique li- literary imprints at a house is because you have people like him. Like, Bill O'Reilly is paying a lot of salaries at, at Henry Holt. He's paying a lot of salaries at Macmillan. Um, and I don't know, like it, it sucks. I think like it, it would be great to be able to say as a publisher, um, you know, we're, we're going to drop this guy cause we don't think he kind of, um, espouses the values of our list. But as we've talked about many times, almost every week it feels like, and I wish we wouldn't have to, but publishers and their authors keep doing give, dumb <laughs> shit. <laughs> they, keep giving us, they keep giving us reasons. Um, but you know, it's not as though. Um, like it says nothing really, it, you know, politics have nothing to do with it. Like, you know, these people, um, you know, they are perfectly happy with O'Reilly's politics, which I think are pretty clearly abhorrent. I don't feel that um, weird saying that. But um, I don't know. But like, they're standing by their man. They're standing by their man. And I don't think that that should come as much of a surprise as I think it's coming to but people. But it's something to remind ourselves. Yeah. It's something yeah. to remind ourselves. And, you know, it, it also – Brings up something really interesting. You know, we were browsing the New York Times bestseller list, and he's on the bestseller list top five Mm -hmm. twice. Twice. He's number one in hardcover nonfiction and number five. Yep. Uh, One on number five for one book that has been out for a whole year, Killing the Rising Sun, which has spent 31 weeks on the list. Yeah. The one that is number one, old school, is uh, this. It just came out. It's the third week mm-hmm. of the list. So he sells. He sells. And then, he and, sells really well. And like, and that's how you justify it, right? Like, if you were trying to, like, if you were a Henry Holt apologist here, 
um, you know, the way you would do it is you would say you publish someone like O'Reilly and you rake in this, these, uh, you know, this revenue. That's how you fund all the other authors. Like the truth is that like a lot of people that you really like that write for that imprint that you would, you know, publishers wouldn't necessarily be able to take the chance on them without a big, you know, steady hitter like O'Reilly. And that's an interesting part of the business, how these things kind of get intertwined, how like comp- people whose value systems are about as opposed as you could possibly expect, um, they end up pretty in pretty, uh, you know, tangled relationships as it come, when it relates to their publisher because you need one to fund the other. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's interesting. So, like, I get um, – it makes sense to me why they are staying with him and why they wouldn't just like give away the money. But at the same time, obviously, like you would hope that people like you know O'Reilly, when something like this happens, that there would you would they would see some sort of you know punishment. And I get that in instinct too. But um, it's not that stuff is never going to come from their book publisher usually. Usually, and I just think like it's important to remember. It's instructive to remember. That the difference here as it relates to like the Milo book being canceled is that had less to do with what he said than the fact that they no longer felt they could sell the book to the people they thought they could sell it to, you know? Speaking of selling books, <laughs> we, yes. we have a new segment to introduce yeah. to you, our dear reader. Um, it is called The Only Good Books. Because there are very few good books. There are only some good books. There are only some good books. So the only good books <laughs> has to do, my friends, with the New York Times bestseller list mm-hmm. and uh, and our various observations about the books found therein on any given week. Um, you know that the New York Times bestseller list is good and important because it's uh, it's reporting from the future. Yeah. Yep. So this week's bestseller list, which has been out for... Um, many days, mm-hmm. like six days or so, yep. uh, is the bestseller list from April 30th, 2017. Hmm. Yep. So, so you know that they're, that they're real and good because they're telling us from a week from now yep. what we're buying. So the hardcover nonfiction list um, is, is what I'm looking at. Yeah. And I'm looking at the top five books. Uh-huh. Okay. And the hardcover nonfiction, keep in mind that these are the ones that are prominently displayed at the beginning of at the, you know, at the front of bookstores. They're, mm-hmm. you know, regularly somewhere between $25 and $30. Um, these, these are big earners, right? Uh, out of the top five, two of them are Bill O'Reilly books. Mm-hmm. One is Hillbilly Elegy, mm-hmm. and one is about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fair to say that the bestsellers in hardcover nonfiction is very, you know, conservative leaning. Sure. You sure? I would agree. Yep. Okay, but then we get to the paperback nonfiction, also known as the cheap but good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hear it. So we have The Zookeeper's Wife, which is a Holocaust book. Uh Um, We have Hidden Figures about black women in NASA. Yep. Uh, We have The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Mm -hmm. We have On Tyranny. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we have White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. So. <laughs> what trend are you seeing, Laura? I, so here's, here's my hot take. Currently, the New York Times, the, the you know, the, the beacon for only good books, mm-hmm. um, is saying that liberals only read paperbacks. <laughs> Is what I'm hearing. While those strong backboned conservatives are reading. (laughs) (laughs) They're reading the hard spine books. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> it's just, it's so weird. Just looking at the top five, there's such a big difference between these. Yeah. But well, we're you know the liberals. They don't have any. They don't have any backbone. Um, we're we're all just like soft little snowflakes, right? Yep. And you just like uh, as soon as you, as soon as you open it, you, it just it cracks. just cracks apart. Just which cracks. is funny because you do have in that in that first Bill O'Reilly book, um, which we should stop at for one second. It's called Old School, right? Um, and the the subtitle is Life in the Sane Lane, and um, the, <laughs> the little blurb here is a defense of old school traditional values versus snowflakes. So we're being mocked with the bestseller list. That's great. We we truly are. I personally feel like a snowflake right now just looking at this. <laughs> <laughs> so should we get to the main thing? We should get to the main thing. So we're going to talk about escapism a little bit today. Um, and it's a word, I think, that means a little something different to everybody. It's a word that certainly relates to reader experience. You know, escapism, I think, in um, common parlance is... You know, it's getting away from the world, right? It's like getting really engrossed getting in a book. Getting lost in right, a book. Right, exactly. That's kind of like it's kind of that sort of language. You know, you get lost in the book or you get lost in the movie and you, kind of, you can forget about things for a while. You know, you can do that sort of stuff. And um, I think you and I both sort of think that maybe that doesn't happen quite the way readers think it should. Yeah. 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 So I, you know, escapism is an actual term. You know, it has cultural roots. It has... Yeah. Um, it has psychological roots and what it's about, it's more about just being distracted mm-hmm. and, it, and it has to do more with seeking and the, like the practice of seeking a distraction from what normally has to be endured. Mm-hmm. So the, your mundane life, your job, your family, your kids, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it, so it's not just, oh, I'm on a vacation. Yeah. It's I'm on a vacation in comparison to what my real life is. Sure. Yeah. And, That's a good way to put it. And so, you know, I, I was thinking I've been thinking a lot about escapism since the election, actually, <laughs> which don't laugh at me. I'm um, not laughing at you. I'm laughing at the, <laughs> si- the situation. Yeah. But. So I, you know, I, I found myself pulling away a lot from a lot of news outlets that right. I tended to consume regularly right you know and i found myself um finding more meaning and more benefit in certain books than before Mm -hmm. so one thing i noticed right after the election my fiance and i were having well we watch movies because we're lazy and lame um and <laughs> I feel like lots of people watch movies that are not lazy and lame, but continue. No, that's why I watch them. <laughs> way to own it. Way to claim it. That's for why yourself. I that's watch great. them. Um, um, so we we were we're slowly making our way through the Harry Potter books because uh-huh. he is not a huge reader and, uh-huh. and hasn't read many of them, if uh-huh. any of them. I'm actually not sure if he's anyway. So we we're on number five, which right. if you don't know is the Order of the Phoenix. This is the another one that people got mad at me about. <laughs> the list is growing on so this show. we put this on i'm like oh yes this is gonna be fun i knew the fucking story you guys like i knew what happened in the order of the phoenix yeah. right right and i put this on thinking like oh this is gonna be a fun escape from reality well, it's and harry then, potter right it's and, a different it's a different world and it's then a different everything. you just have a bunch of teenagers crushing fascism mm-hmm. for the entire movie <laughs> Which is like, it takes way longer to read the book than it does to watch the movie. Right, right. Right? And so it it got me thinking. I was like, you know, this made me feel better. Uh And it, it, you know, I might think that it took me away, but it didn't. 
it just made me feel better about what's happening right now. Well, so that's so that's the thing with escapism, right? Is it's sort of this this idea that you can leave the world behind and enter a different world, and it's a very um, it's a very easy term, I think, at really you know at with a quick thought to you know to imagine because you know fiction, all fiction happens in you know a different world other than this one, even like true to life fiction. You know, it's a world rendered that you know that isn't ours. You know, even if it's meant to look like ours, and so you know there is some leaving that happens when you know every time you read fiction and you enter some new space. You are, um, you know, you are going from your real world to another place. Like that's that's true in some sense, but the escaping part, you know, the bit where you're fleeing, you know, because you know, escape is in the word. Like I think it's fair to say that you know, it's like this concept where you can flee something and enter somewhere else for a while and then come back. And I just don't think it quite happens that way. I don't actually know that escaping is something. You can do in fiction, and in fact, I think that most people like reading books because they can't actually escape as well as they think they can. Because you can leave your life, you know, you can get into a book, and you can get as engrossed and as engaged in all these things as you want in a book. But the thing you you can't really escape yourself. You can't. Yeah, you, you, you can't like, escape yourself, and you can't escape the fact that you're human. Every time you read, you're bringing to that book your personal experiences, your knowledge base on anything, your um, biases, your beliefs, your, um, you know, the things that make you particularly sensitive or like, you know, you, for instance, like whether you wanted to escape or not, you brought. um, I brought fascism into Harry Potter. And do you know what? Harry Potter met me with fascism (laughs) right at the gate. Well, you brought your, you brought your feeling about the world. Yeah into watching this, even as you tried to leave it. And I think it's very difficult to leave that stuff behind. And I think that the most rewarding, like the reason what we call escapism, but I don't think actually is, feels so good when we think we have it, is because there's a certain amount of resonance that happens when you go somewhere else that has some sort of synergy with the world um, that we actually live in. You know what I mean? Like fiction is interesting because of the comparison and the contrast between that world and this one, right? Like You can connect with it. It's like you can connect, you know, you can bring it and you can see here's how, you know, like I feel like with a lot of, you know, science fiction and fantasy, you know, part of the draw in reading it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong as someone who works in it more than I do, but um, part of the draw of reading it is being able to compare your world to that one, to being able to say, Oh, this scientific thing doesn't exist in my world, or this or this particular thing is a heightened version or an enhanced version of this thing that I have, or you know, it's it's all about kind of exploring the differences that the author has kind of created. And it, and, and and by changing the changing the landscape, yeah, you are able to reveal certain truths about about, the, about yeah. people. Right. That you aren't necessarily able to do with regular life. And that's the thing. And so like different – like even the act of looking at a difference involves also examining the world you're coming from when you go into that new world, yeah. right? And so I don't know. Like for me, you know, it never quite happens as cleanly as people think. And I think that sometimes um, people try to escape and then what I think is always very indicative of how they have failed to escape. And I say failed like – Lightly, because I don't think it's a bad thing that you. I think it's a like, good it's thing. A, I think I, I think that's what we're both saying is I think it's a very good thing, but no one ever comes back as cleanly as they think they have when they read fiction. Like you leave your world and you go and start reading something and you get lost in it, and you you haven't really left 
um, your actual life behind as much as you think because you are reading and you're bringing all of yourself into the, those pages. And when you're pulled out of and it, when you, you come are back, hung over. When, yeah, exactly. Exactly. When you come back, you're bringing that book with you to a certain extent. Um, and I think that, that is, that's something that uh, plays in quite a bit with the way we kind of talk about uh, the world. When people try to do book analogies, you know, like, I mean, what, what everything we, is 1984. Exactly, right. Exactly. <laughs> everything exactly. is the handmaid's like, tale. Right. Exactly. Like you get these people who, you know, you read and not the 1984. The thing with 1984 is no one reads 1984 intending to escape. Right. Correct. Like people read 1984 because they want they're looking for, you know, the similarities to this world. You know, they, Everyone bought it, you know, in the recent months, you know, hit number one, on the bestseller list. Not because everyone was trying to escape this world, but because they were trying to, do, you know, it's very easy with a book like 1984 to say, yeah, I'm reading this because of the world. I'm not trying to escape it. I'm trying to engage with it through fiction. But it's trickier when you take what I think are two of the biggest, um, es- quote unquote, escape series. And that also end up that ended up being two of the most common tired analogies when it came to discussing politics over the last so year. Harry Potter, Harry Potter, and Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Mm. Absolutely. How many articles did you read over the past you know year, especially leading up to the election, that basically said you know this election or this particular feature of it or this particular thing was like Game of Thrones or this you know this particular bit was like Harry Potter. You had you know J.K. Rowling on Twitter all day every day for a solid year, and she still is, um, telling you who and who isn't Dumbledore. You know what I mean? It's like I'm Dumbledore. It's <laughs> big reveal. <laughs> I'm Dumbledore. Um, but, like, but you see what I'm saying is that – and so, you know, people go to these series ostensibly to escape, right? Like Game of Thrones is this – and so is Harry Potter, but these completely separate worlds where you go because it's fantastic and fun and – um, I mean, I guess Game of Thrones is less like whimsical and fun and more, but it's just more, more like, gory and yeah, fun. exactly. But it's like <laughs> it's a form of entertainment. But when you leave it, you're still bringing it with you, and you saw a lot of people bring it with them over. And I so I just I, I always yeah. get wary when people like es- escapism is a form of compartmentalizing, right? It's saying that you can completely separate these two worlds. And I just simply don't believe in people's ability to do that. And I think it's good that they can't. to truly engage with books, to really, really know a piece of literature, you have to examine it from every angle. And so that compartmentalization doesn't work. I mean, if you, and that connection is such an integral part of it, you know, you consider what you and I do. Yeah. You know, you were reading partials this afternoon and a lot of them were fine, Right. You just weren't slapped in the face by how pulled in you were. Right. It right? didn't get you. It's there so was much no about connection. Feeling. Yeah. And that, I mean, you could argue that the books that you have no connection to are the ones that have the best escape. You know, there's there's this huge, you know, discussion right now in publishing about the lack of um, people of color in, in acquisitions positions leading to a lack of yeah. – um, We've characters, about right, right, yeah. and the link there is is because it's all about connection and being able to connect right. with a book, right? And so here's the thing: um, it is scientifically and anecdotally proven that reading fiction makes you more empathetic. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it allows you to do that thing that fiction does and to step into somebody else's shoes and live lives that you will never live. Exactly. But it's but it's also you. Yeah. Like it is teaching you to do that. And that is, I think, 
the very different definition of not escaping. It carries back into your life. Exactly. And so like it I, teaches you it change like it fundamentally changes how you behave. Which makes sense, right? Like if you read um if you read stories about anything, um any sort of characters and you start to inhabit their lives and you really get into the story or whatever, like and you start I mean you you're by nature of reading, you're seeing things from their perspective and mm-hmm. you're practicing that skill. And then to come back, you I mean, it makes sense that it would make you, you know, more empathetic in your real life because it would make it easier, which is what empathy is, right? It's the ability to um, you know, feel for a person based on, you know, seeing Or even their, just consider positions yeah, other than your own. Exactly. Like it allows you to inhabit other people's lives, right? And so I think I think that's a great thing that fiction does. And I think what you say about engagement is key. Um, I sort of view it as the opposite of escapism, engagement. I agree. And I also think that you also you're always engaging, and you're always um, you know you're always plugged in, no matter if, even if you're trying to. Never log off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when it comes to fiction, you are never logging off. Um, and I also think you know one thing. Uh, the other bit I was thinking about today is I, I think that this ties in a little bit to why. Um, reader intent is so much more important than author intent. Okay, tell, talk to me about well, that. Well, you know what I mean? Because, like, fiction is evaluated by, you know, whether it's, you know, a f- piece of fiction is judged good or bad, not by the person who wrote it, right? It's judged by the people who read it. And, you know, we've talked a bunch that who cares what the author means. It's about what gets, you know, translated into the experience of reading it. Like, reading is the most important thing because, that engagement is always happening. And I feel like if we were actually able to escape and treat things as purely um, – because escapism has this, has this uh, connotation of mindlessness, right? Like sure. esca- escapism is a term that gets thrown – you know, it's very – It's for reading and Caribbean vacations only. Exactly. It's, it, or it's, you know, it's a word that kind of gets tossed derisively at like video games, right? Like, mm. oh, it, that's just pure escapism. You're trying to just kind of disengage from the world. And maybe those people are, maybe they're not. But the point is um, – it's, you know, escapism has this connotation of being mindless. And I think that every reader, no matter how lightly you're reading that beach read in the Caribbean or trying to just get lost in some, um, you know, Swords and Dragons book, you probably deserve a little more credit than that. And you probably have a little more presence of mind as you're reading. And you're definitely thinking about it later. And you're definitely seeing it in your world. You and know? how you engage with it matters more. Like, I will die on the hill that J.K. Rowling has no queer characters in her books. Well, there's no evidence. For, I mean, so well, well what she are you says talking? now. So what do you? So okay, but let's back. That's a obviously that could sound like a nonsense. I mean, we don't need to go into a Harry Potter sh- episode. Sure, but but, back, but let's ma- make your point though. Okay, so the so so J.K. Rowling is lover to pieces, but is very um, very involved in controlling the narrative surrounding the readership of her books. Right. Right. So she, you know, came out you know, a couple years ago saying Dumbledore is gay, mm-hmm. you know, Lupin, and this Lupin's is, werewolfism is a metaphor for AIDS. Sure. All of this and all stuff. this stuff. And now and I think what's crucial to understand here is all of these statements from her have come out years after the, like a decade, almost after almost. these, after these books have published. Right. And she's, right. Just, and yeah. So, continue. so she is, you know, continually inserting her, authorial intent when there's actually not any textual anything really to support it. Right. I mean, you can, I mean, depending on how you read, you can read something into it. But as far as like, if I was writing an English paper on Harry Potter and was trying to find. There's no credible case for it. There's no, I mean, no, no, there's no credible case for it. So, or there's no credible case either way. It's just hard to make that. Exactly. But so, 
I think what you're getting at here is that you have um, the author of a book after the fact and after people are reading it trying to dictate that reader experience. Right. And that would be, to me, that would be something she would have a lot more luck in doing. And I guess, I mean, I guess we can kind of judge how much luck she's having because, um, you know, lots of people buy in when she says things. But I think from a critical perspective, she isn't having luck because I think that what you've said kind of holds. No. And Whereas – but like re- yeah. reader experience wins out and it's it because reader experience is much more profound thing than engaging with something as sort of an escapist fan, even if that's what you think of yourself as being right. like you're more affected by a book than um, than you think. And it gets brought back into the world a lot less cleanly. And I think that that process needs to be engaged with a lot more. Right. You know, like, like I, I am all for reader headcanon about, you know, like Dumbledore being gay. Sure. Because it's orga- it comes organically from the reader. Like, I will also die on the hill that Ponyboy is gay in <laughs> The Outsiders. Sure. Because that is something that, like, lots of people have – like, the conclusion that lots of people have legitimately come to yeah. through their readership. And, of course, um, kind of as a, as a foil to J.K. Rowling coming out and being praised for – saying this thing that actually isn't supported by the text. The yeah. author of The Outsiders, as he Hinton, came in and said, absolutely, Ponyboy is not gay. You are all wrong. You are horrible. You are not <laughs> reading it the way that I meant to. You're awful. Uh, and she got panned, uh-huh. right? And so, and and the really interesting thread here is that one of them, um, well, I mean, there one is with the times and one is against the times, but one, J.K. Rowling, I think deserves... Um, Interesting criticism by trying to control the narrative, yeah. and Essie Essie Hinton, you know, also trying to control the narrative. Yeah. Like that's like that's equally two, bad. Those two, those two, yeah. in, in the two things you've just told me, both of those authors have done the same thing. Correct. Even as one argues in the positive, one argues in the negative. Correct. And I, th- I think both of their opinions are frankly irrelevant because the text is already out there and existing and being consumed. Yeah, you experience and, it yourself, and reading is a profoundly personal and private experience. And some people do choose to share that with yeah. the world. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like how you carry a book through your life is going to be a lot different than other people. Yeah. Um, one thing I've been thinking a lot about with with regards to escapism or not escaping mm-hmm. um, is learning words. So when you, so if you're if you're a reader, very often you will come across a word, and you will figure it out or you'll hear something in regular conversation or like at some point you will learn a word, a new word. Uh And then all of a sudden you had never heard this word before in your entire life and you have no idea what it means. And then all of a sudden it's fucking everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so, and that's not because all of a sudden the universe has decided like Laura understands what this word means. Now it's going to be everywhere. No, no, no. Humans are pattern, have, have, have pattern seeking psychology. Yeah. Right. So it, it is our nature uh-huh. to try to find ourselves in things, try to find patterns, try to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. Whether you're choosing to do that or not. Oh, yeah. And that's no, what this I think, is entirely lizard brain. Right. <laughs> and that's what I think. That's what I think is so interesting is that um, you don't get to escape. You know, and you shouldn't necessarily want to, I don't think. But like. Um, like what you've just said, like even on just a purely like diction level, on like a words yeah. on the page page level, you're being affected, and that you know it's not a switch you can turn on and off. You know, I think that fiction, what's great about it and what makes it so powerful is that it doesn't really give you a choice in the matter. 
you know, it just and like, like hits you over the head. And with in it. fact, and in fact, I would argue that the reason most people set down books is because they aren't, you know, like a poorly executed book is one that you would be able to escape into more, right? Because that's one that isn't grabbing you on the level required to make a good book. You know, and that's not even like some argument for like highbrow like literary stuff. That's like an argument for any book with an engaging story or an engaging set of characters or anything. And um, I just think that a hallmark of any good book is the fact that it's not going to let you escape into it. Yeah, fiction. It's going to never... let you engage with it. It's going to bring you in, but it's not going to let you just drop your world off. It's going to make you um, deal with both at the same time. And I think that that's why um, so often. In moments of, um, you know, extreme, you know, political volatility or in any kind of moment in, in time where may, in, even just in your personal life where you feel, um, you know, a certain amount of stress or something. Like the reason people turn to fiction is actually the opposite of escapism. It's not because they're looking to get away. It's because they're looking to make sense see, of something. They're looking to see truth in something that's somehow further away from the literal facts of their lives. Like, I mean, how often... You know, you, you get phrases in the common parlance like, you know, stranger than fiction or this is, um, you know, this book is somehow true, more true than real life. You know, and I think I buy both of those things. Like, you know, I think that you could read a piece of fiction that does feel more true than something you read that's pretending to be, um, you know, a real like obviously news right now. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> And you can but, live something yeah, it, that seems totally ridiculous. Exactly. No, so like it's um, – you know, escapism kind of carries this connotation that what you're reading isn't true because you could never escape into something true, right? Like yeah. in, ter- in the way we're using escapism, you would have to escape into something that is just so mindless so as not to hold any truth at all. But I don't think that's what's happening. No, I mean, and you're not going to read a book that has that's what, that's, nothing. Yeah, see, that's what I'm saying about like yeah. you know, a book, the only kind of book that you could ever truly escape into is one you that wouldn't read. <laughs> is one that you wouldn't want to read because it wouldn't do all the necessary things to make you interested in it. Yeah, um, and fiction fiction just never stays fiction. Yeah, exactly. You know, like the other the other day, I was telling you about um, we were just talking about something in general, and it made me think of the book that I was reading. Yeah, um, and I'm reading just this like kind of frothy women's fiction novel called The Assistance by mm-hmm. Camille Perry. That is um, – it's about a bunch of, like, plucky young assistants at a big media corporation who end up embezzling money to pay off their student loans. <laughs> um, and it's – you know, it's – I'm not done with it. it that's, I like it so far, sure. Yeah. But, like, there was something in our conversation that made me need to tell you about this book. Yeah. yeah. And I don't remember what it was, but I remember telling you about this book and I remember ha- feeling all of a sudden that this book was applicable to my life. Well, in that, in that, that feeling right there, the one you described, the need to talk about it. Um, the entire industry of books is built on that feeling, right? Like it's, you know, word of mouth, right? Like that's the common, that's the common thing you see. That's that's what sells books. That's what gets people talking. That's what generates publicity. Um, it's this feeling that like, um, it's this feeling that you can't stop talking about it. And the only reason you would be able to not be able to stop talking about a book is if you were experiencing things in your real life that made you think of it. And it's applying to everything. Yeah, exactly. How did I never notice? Well, that's the thing, right? Is like any, and I think this is where comparisons like, you know, Game of Thrones to politics or Harry Potter to politics or, um, you know, 1984 to the current situation or whatever. Like it happens because you read these books and you can't stop thinking about them. Mm -hmm. Like the reason I think everyone wanted to compare everything or House of Cards, you know, is another like story that people love to kind of just like. Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like things like that. 
Um, you know, it happens because fiction doesn't just set you down so easily. You know, it let it make it worms its way into your into the front of your mind, and um, I don't know. It's and so I think often like when you have people kind of posit these, you know, opinions or pieces that kind of comparing something in real life to something in fiction, um, it needs to exist on a you know. And I am someone who has complained about um, these sorts of you know kind of lazy comparisons, and I, I've always kind of viewed it as not necessarily useful at um, various points, but um, I mostly think that because the authors who try to do it treat the very fact of comparison as novel, like just the fact that they could link this thing to this thing is somehow not, is somehow like worth showing us. Whereas I think that that is a given. Anyone who reads any book could link it to anything because it's always on your mind. And so if you're going to do it, you need to have a more substantial reason for doing so beyond just, hey, I'm seeing a connection because we're all seeing connections to every book we've read. It needs to be um, more than, hey, women are being subjugated and their right, their their reproductive rights are being controlled. That's like The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, it's like, well, like yeah. this is, you know, like this is like this is very, it's never good enough. And, but the reason, and to loop it back to what we're actually talking about here. Um, the reason it's not good enough is because it happens so frequently because no one is able to escape as well as they thought they could when they entered a book because if they could, then a large swath of people would choose not to engage on that level, thus making that comparison more novel when some column writer tries to do it. Um, but it isn't how it is. We're all seeing all this kind of stuff, and it's not particularly new or insightful to say so purely just on that facile level. Like you have to actually dig into it a little bit. I love uh, for, like I love reading comparisons of like how this bit of literature is like you know this real thing, but it should happen on a level that's a little more true to the experience that we're all having. You yeah, know? I mean, in acknowledging the fact that a lot of our listeners are writers yeah. and are people that work in publishing. Yeah. Um, you know, I I very casually asked on Twitter today, right. you know, why people read fiction? Just just a simple, yeah. just tell me why you read yeah. fiction, and. You know, a, a lot of the people were talking, you know, it was this very even split between I write to forget about my boring life or to, you know, forget about all my problems. Yeah. And I forget or and I read so that I can live other lives and meet other people. And a lot of times these two things were said in the same tweet, in the same response. Yeah. And I feel like one of these is is the reader doing a little bit more heavy lifting on their part and kind of trying to engage with the story a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, the I'm just reading because it's fun. I mean, like, I, I don't want to say I'm, I'm what we're not saying is that escapism or not having escapism means that you can't enjoy what you're reading. Well, that's not at all. I only read saying. something yeah. I enjoy the hell out of what I'm reading. No, but but, enjoy, but there's a big enjoyment difference. is different than escape. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I feel like a lot of the people are saying, you know, like, I like to live other people's lives and it's fun because I can pretend to be somewhere else. And I think, okay, so, and I think that's awesome. And I think yes. that's an incredibly profound experience. It is. That extends way past what I think people think they're saying when they say they're trying to escape. So what I'm challenging everyone is is to not use escapism as a shorthand because I feel like, I mean, I, I'm thinking about the books that truly change who I am. And I, you know, I, I've said this once and I will say it a million more times, you know, a reason that I love young adult fiction especially is because the people who read that, teenagers, they, they when they read something, 
those books have the ability to change who they are in a more yeah. profound way than you do as adults. And so sure. I've been I've been racking, you know, I've been thinking forever about why that's the case, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because their brains aren't fully developed yet. Sure. Okay. But also, like, you can't forget the fact that, like, teenagers are profoundly emotional and hormonal and they are profoundly self-centered. Uh-huh. And I feel like there's something really wonderful about that in their reading experience because if a teenager is so self-centered that they read something about another person, then I feel like the benefit that they gain from that lifting, from from that connection that they're making with this imagined character, I feel like that can make a bigger difference yeah. and and kind of let them take a larger step than than something that I would read right now. Well, so, so yeah, no, I mean, I... I I'm on board with all of that. I, mean, I want to push on one thing you said in there, though, um, which is you were talking about the books, you know, that changed your life. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think is important to kind of address, though, is that a lot of times people, most times probably, people pick up book. you know, people don't necessarily want the books to change their life. You know, people pick up their books purely to be entertained. You know, I don't pick up every book that I try to read as like something I'm hoping, you know, completely changes my world. Well, no, a lot of the times sometimes, it happens by Sometimes accident. I'm just trying to be entertained, but I think that um, referring to that as escapism sells the power of entertainment short. You know, like I think that that's a big, um, like that feeling is something that's kind of driving, you know, this new era of like prestige television too. Is like, it's not just, um, it's like finally a genre of TV that sort of gets it, you know, has become aware of the fact that it's ne- you're never just zoning out while you're watching. Yeah. It's something that can affect you on a level, even as you're purely what. Like no one's watching these shows because they're like trying to have their lives. Shit. They're trying to learn. They're trying to be entertained. They want a good story. But the reason it works is because um, it's hitting you somewhere deeper. And finally, you know, this medium kind of said, "Hey, this is happening. Let's just lean into it a little more." But and the television that's coming out now is profoundly better than what was out there sure. years ago. Um, but so. Um, I guess I would say like even the people um, of which I am very much a part who pick up books just to you know have something to read on the plane or the beach or because it sounded interesting or funny or whatever um, that's you know it's that's not quite pure escapism either you know there, there's still engagement happening there and in fact the very act of like being entertained by something implies a certain amount of engagement I yeah. think and and lean into it why not yeah. Right. Like just, you know, especially if you're a writer, especially if you if you're a reviewer, especially, you know, like, you know, there needs to be more than, oh, this was a fun book. Like because I feel like a lot of the time when I say, oh, it was fun, it you means it that it wasn't very good. You mean it derisively. Yeah. Like it wasn't very good. Like yeah. a, like a fun book is a book that I will not recommend. A book that's got me, you know, like stewing on something, like yeah. chewing on something. Yeah. Is definitely what I'm going to do. So, like, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm certainly going to challenge myself now, now that we've had, you know, yeah. a couple of days where we've really thought about why we read yeah. and what it does for us. I'm definitely going to challenge well, myself. Well, so, okay, so yeah. on that, though, um, I have no idea why I read. <laughs> I don't, like, you asked that today, and I, like, stared at it and kind of thought about it. I was like, I don't know. I feel like it's but different like, for every but, book. But so, but so here's the thing, though, is it doesn't matter why it doesn't matter that I have some reason in my the front of my conscious um you know why I read like I don't need to know that answer in order to be affected by a book in the manner I'm going to be affected by it you know like I don't have any is this kind of what I think is at the core of what we're saying is though is that 
it you know I don't have any power really to you know escape from the things that I read. I can't set it down or pick it up or you know it's it doesn't matter if I if I read because I'm trying to like you know inhabit new worlds or I'm if I read because you know I'm trying to learn about a certain thing or I read because I want to you know get to really feel this certain setting. It's like all of that stuff is just going to happen, you know, if I'm engaging with the text mm-hmm. and who cares like what I thought the goal was, like it's just going to happen. And that feels far more important to me than having like a pre-existing mission statement for my reading, you know, like, so um, the point is like, it's not really a decision whether you're escaping or not. You're just not, <laughs> I guess that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. But I think it's fascinating. I think that, um, I mean, I, it, that sounds oh, that sounded a little bit belligerent, but what I mean is I think that readers should give themselves more credit for the way they're engaging even when they don't realize. Yep, yep, and the heavy lifting that they're doing. So I feel like it's time for the right tip to talk about something that we all have at one point or another in our lives, and that is a sagging middle. Mm. That, was a, that was a weight joke because it's the end of winter. <laughs> Tell you what. <laughs> sagging middles. Um, so this, a lot of times, and, you know – Eric can definitely speak to speak to that on his level, but most of the time when I'm writing books, you know, whether they're they're printed or they are, you know, in my slush pile, but particularly in my slush pile, um, when I'm reading a book, I'm super into it for the first third, first half. Yeah. And then it just kind of like loses its way. Uh-huh. And it it's it's this sad, sad thing because you keep reading for like 30 pages beyond when you realize that it no longer has a plot, that it mm-hmm. just has a story. Um, and so be, I, I know, I know we as agents really, really hit on you to, you know, get your first page right, get your first three chapters right, you know, get your end right. But the middle is important because we're not going to get to the end unless the middle's good. Well, I think that, um, I think that, you know, there's such an emphasis on making that first impression with these first few chapters mm-hmm. and everything that a lot of the techniques and a lot of the, like, really, like, you know, you're nailing down the certain details and stuff, you know, on the in the beginnings because you're trying to make that impression. You're trying to get someone to just keep reading. That a lot of the time that kind of stuff can, um, you know, it can sort of fall away in the middle because you feel like once the story's going, you can quit kind of tending to the fundamentals of plot tension and stuff right. like that. So so the big and, thing to focus on here is to ask yourself whether you have a story in the middle of your book or you have a plot. And yeah. You should be getting a plot. And so the big thing to do is if you realize, oh, no, I just like I'm losing it. I have no tension or anything. Um, tension's just such a key word and nobody ever really knows like what it means. Right. Um, but here's what you should focus on. You should focus on urgency, urgency. You should focus on context and implication. So, you know, is there a ticking clock? Like, what? Why are people really driven and and really enthusiastic about achieving something? What is the context of their actions? You know, in the larger scheme of the plot. Like, if they do something, what happens? Um, and also, you know, the the implication of of what they're going towards and how that's going to feed into a, a larger structure. Well, I think, um, you know, just to kind of underlie all of that, um, a great way to kind of find those things is through conflict. Um, yes. You know, just like, you know, if you're struggling with, you know, you feel like nothing's happening, just like stick something in front of your characters. You know what I mean? Just like, um, con- like you talk about what's tension. I mean, tension is the, um, you know, it's the result of having conflict in your book, you know, before it's stakes, you know, and stakes happen when there's, um, 
you know, things that are going wrong or things that, you know, are up in the air and not necessarily certain. So um, when in doubt, just like think of a way you can throw your character for a loop or like add in some sort of complication or a layer. Um, That's kind of for me, like the the thing that disappears to me from the middle of books is um, like actual conflicts. You sort of get into these just this kind of just this malaise of three chapter training montage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like things like, you know, that are just kind of devoid of like real plot stakes. And I think the way to reintroduce that if you're trying to like conceptualize it in an easy way is just get back to conflict. All right. So with that, uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us. This our 27th episode of Print Run. Remember, our first page of show goes live this Thursday, the 27th. So send us your first page at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Also send us your queries and we will see you next week. See ya.